If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. This is another of our popular Listener's Choice interviews, which we're playing over the weekend. We've chosen the most popular interviews for you to select the Listener's Choice winner. If you're not sure how the Listener's Choice competition works, have a look at horsechats.com slash choice for the rules and the leaderboard. If you have the same vision as International Horse College, which is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses, and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people, then have a look at their website internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Today I'm going to introduce you to Catherine Davies. Now Catherine's an eventing coach and eventing rider but she also specialises in dressage as well. At the moment she's setting up her own property in Gisborne in Victoria. How are you today Catherine? I'm well thanks Gwyneth. Great. All right now Catherine we normally start off with your favourite quote or a quote that you often use. Have you got one for us? I have got one for you, and it's actually, I wouldn't say it's mine, and I don't know where it originated from, but it's something that one of my coaches and mentors used to use all the time. It is, if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. It's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. I think from a training perspective, yeah, it's definitely a good one. Yep. When did they tell you that? Were you doing something? Were you, you know, there was a lesson in it? Uh, no, no, it was a, a common phrase used. Mm. I think probably when she was trying to make me make change and not get stuck in a rut. And, yep. you know, I guess it's easy to get stuck in that rut. But I think every time she wanted me to, to improve and make changes to what I was doing, um, that yep. one came out often. Okay. And do you use it for your own students now? A bit, but probably not as much as it was used on me <laughs> through all those years of training with the one coach. <laughs> but no, I definitely have used it. And I guess probably more in conversation, actually, when I've had um, training conversations with people or whatever, I've used it then. Okay, good, good. All right. Now, can you tell me a bit about your own horses, what your first memories are? Sure. So I had an older sister mm-hmm. who was horse mad. She's Quite, uh, 10 years older than me. So when she was granted the opportunity to have a horse, the people that her horse first horse came from had this feral Welsh pony that they were keen to get rid of. So basically they did a, a package deal. <laughs> How old were you at that stage? I was five. So my sister got the big horse and the feral pony came along at that point in time, I just wanted to play with it, pick out its feet, that sort of stuff. But this thing was virtually unbroken. So picking out feet, you know, even touching legs was a small issue. <laughs> so I think once I showed the amount of keenness that I did at that point, the next pony wasn't that far to follow, which was a much more suitable sort of beginner's pony, I suppose. It was speedy, very speedy, but... It was kind. Probably a wise move for a five-year-old to have a kind pony. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Exactly. All right. Okay, now going from that, 
to you making a decision to work with horses, have a career, do things professionally with horses, what brought that on? Was it something that you decided as a five-year-old or something you decided later on? How did that work out? I think it was probably something that progressed as I went along. I think, you know, I can remember the day I told mum I was giving up, which was only the next pony after the speedy beginner's pony that I had, which was a young pony and I can remember just being very frustrated with training that pony and I told mum I was going to give up and she went right I'll sell the pony and then the next week I was like no 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 actually I'll keep going (laughs) and that probably was the turning point where I was like actually I think I've got the determination to do this game and again maybe if I had had another horror horse in my career that maybe I would have looked at things differently but it was never a consideration for me as I was going through school I was still 100% 100% dedicated to the horses. I used to spend a lot of time travelling interstate with the horses from Tasmania, which took a lot of time and effort and whatever, but I still managed to just keep on top of my schoolwork. And I think at that point when I finished school, I had two very good horses, one that was two-star, nearly ready to go three-star, and a younger, very promising horse coming on, which incidentally those two horses are the two that I rode for staff later on. But I think because I had those horses at that stage in my career, I was like, well, I want to do this. And I'd also, through year 12, I had done my level one accreditation through year 12 as well, so that I sort of had, I guess, a bit of pocket money for when I finished school. But I think probably mum and dad were very keen to not let me delve so completely into the horses and be so, um, I guess, put all my eggs in my basket. So I did start uni in the year after I finished school. I tried to do uni in Tassie for 18 months, which just didn't work because of the amount of time that I was away. So I think, again, that showed them the dedication we had to the horses. So I transferred and studied an equine science degree via distance ed whilst very much trying to run a business in Tassie and on the other side of the water as well. Mm, mm. That's, uh, yeah, but complementary, more complementary. What were you doing in the first place? What was your first option for uni? I was studying ag science. Okay, so not completely away, but yeah, equine's probably a lot better. No, and I think that's why I picked it because it was really all I could do in Tassie that you know, I had an interest in and was semi-related to what I did. And I was, some of the subjects that I did, you know, I did some pastures and soils and that sort of stuff. And just even the um, the basic science stuff, the physics and chem and stuff, which all set me up for what I ended up doing anyway. All right. Now, you said that you had determination. What other skills do you think you needed to commence a career with horses? I think with horses, patience goes a yep. long way. And I think patience is something I've developed a lot more of as I've got older. I wouldn't ever say I was violently impatient, but I think I've had a couple of horses more recently (laughs) which have made me have to be very patient. So, yeah, definitely patience. I think attention to detail. One of mum's quotes, actually, is he who makes the fewest mistakes wins. Okay. So I think, again, from a training perspective, if you are meticulous and, and pay att- attention to the small details, whether that be yeah, training or whether that be 
in a management perspective as well. And I think I'm probably quite meticulous about how I manage my horses as well. So, I mean, again, you know, you can keep pulling more words out of your head, I suppose, that describe what you need to be. But I think, yeah, probably determined, patient and having attention to detail is a pretty good starting point. All right. What do you think then, you know, because they're the skills that we talk about to start a career with horses. What do you think? I mean, lots of people think, oh, sure, I'm going to, you know, ride four-star. What do you think the keys are to excelling in your career, to reaching that level? That's a tough one. I think, again... Well, you'd see it not just in yourself but in other riders and other competitors. What is it that you've got and other competitors have got that the rest of the world is just saying, well, one day I'm going to get there, but they never do? I think, again, another saying, you know, people do say you're only as good as the horse you're sitting on, Mm -hmm. which I think that plays a part for sure. Again, the two horses that I've got to that level, I wouldn't say when I purchased them, I was like, yes, I've just bought a four-star horse, even Mm -hmm. though they were three- and five-year-olds off the track. Because I think, again, that's where the ability to train and be meticulous in your training and management and that sort of stuff. But I think, too, and again, you know, people say it all the time, but hard work. You need to put in the hard yards. You can't just get on the horse and ride it around the arena for 20 minutes and think you're training it. You know, yeah. you've got to, and again, maybe goal setting, like being able to set goals and sort of training plans with where you're going, like against that methodical sort of step by step, but also then being able to modify that plan, not be, you know, I think I see a lot of people that go, right, well, I'm going to do this event, this event, this event, and I'll go, you know, do this level at this one and this level at this one. And then when they hit a speed bump, they can't redirect their plan. And I think maybe I've had my fair share of roadblocks in every single Are they roadblocks or just detours? Speed bumps, I suppose. But again, you know, you hit a roadblock and you can go back another way. Yeah. I think roadblocks, speed humps, detours, you know, really they all just point to your ability to be able to redirect and focus on the important stuff. I can remember one day when I had a complete meltdown, one of my very few meltdowns to my mum on the phone when I was in Victoria with a bunch of horses over here by myself and I had a horse I was going to sell and it blew this massive splint. And that was my tipping over the edge point for the trip away. And the most ridiculous thing, you know, my competition horses were all sound and fit, but this one blowing splint where I guess, again, I'd bargained on having the money in the bank and whatever else, and instead he had to sit in the paddock for a few months before he was sound enough to sell. And again, I think it's, like as I said, that seriously was a really minor one, but being able to pick yourself up, take a deep breath and go, okay, this is not the end of the world. But I think, you know, that was probably, again, the old straw that broke the camel's back in that situation. (laughs) Okay. Now, you talked about your mum being a great shoulder to lean on in times of trouble. Who else has influenced you? In terms of horse people, again, my the opening quote that we talked about was a long-time coach of mine who's now a friend and, again, she was more than just a coach, she was a mentor. And as I said, now very good friends, a lady called Jill Schwartz in Tassie. So Jill, we were lucky enough to come across Jill when I was seven or eight years old. And 
I trained with Jill until we left Tasmania, so when I was maybe, I can't even remember what year it was, 25, when we actually left Tassie properly. So every time I was back in Tassie, I always trained with Jill. She kept her horses on our property, so I was able to have a lot of eyes on the ground, probably more than a lot of people from an early age, because often we'd ride together. Yep. So that was a huge bonus, I suppose, to have those eyes, and again, Jill was an absolute stickler for correctness, mm-hmm. training scale all the way, and I had that instilled in me from a really, really young age. Again, at that point in time, I had no idea that it was the training scale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. But again, it was those basics that, yeah, I had absolutely drilled into me, and it, I'm lucky enough to have had that, I suppose. So, yeah, Jill definitely has been a massive influence in so many respects, and again, down to the management side of things as well, but, you know, training particularly. And then I think more recently, once I started travelling onto the other side of the water a bit more, I had a lot of dressage help from Charlotte Pedersen in my early days over here, which again, now she lives just down the road. <laughs> so I see a bit of Charlotte. That's good. And jumping again in Tassie, we were really lucky. We used to get quite a lot of good coaches down there and... Charlotte used to come down as well once we met her over here. But in terms of jumping coaches, we were lucky to have Alexa Bell down there a lot. And I trained with Alexa with one horse I had that was a notoriously bad show jumper. She helped me a lot as well with that. And then more recently, Jamie Coleman as well. But also Ben Netterfield, who I believe you interviewed recently. Ben used to come to Tassie from when I was about maybe 14. And I used to go and stay with Ben often when I was travelling north. I was going to say, and and Jamie um, as well. We've interviewed Jamie as well. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so both Jamie and Ben have been big influences on my jumping as well. And again, I still have the odd lessons of Ben when he's in Victoria and Jamie again when I've got something that needs a bit of a a tune up but at the moment I've got nothing really ready to venture too far afield. Okay all right now what about horses who've influenced you? Um, So again I've referred to the two horses that I've ridden at four star level which are Queen's Consort and Queen's Ransom. Queen's Consort we purchased as a three-year-old off the track when I was 11 years old. Wow. Ridiculous. Who does that? At that point in time, I did have a Connemara thoroughbred cross who was 15-2, so he was, you know, a bit bigger than a pony. And I did do my first three-day event on him. wouldn't say he taught me to ride correctly, but he was a cross-country machine, so he taught me to be brave going cross-country, I suppose. And, yeah, so while I was riding him, then, yeah, we started this three-year-old off the track, which, incidentally, we bought through Peter and Caro Wagner. They had acquired him because they were told he was a half-brother to their famous jumping mare, um, WS Scandal, which he was absolutely no relation, but he was black. (laughs) So I think they got told this story and someone tried to take him for a ride, but they did very little with him and we bought him as a three-year-old mm. and basically I went through the pony club ranks with him mm. and we just kept going. That's great. And good, good story. he ended up at Adelaide Four Star in 2001. Yep. So I was 21 at the time um, and we fished nights in the Four Star. So that was awesome. His career was cut short with a injury injury. 
So sadly, yeah, his eventing career finished. He did do a bit of dressage with a friend of mine and he was coming home to Tassie to retire and he actually had a little mishap in the truck on the way home and that was the end of him, sadly. It's a shame, yeah. Yeah, it was very sad how sometimes those good ones, again, he was a little bit precious in the brain sometimes. Mm. So, yeah, that's sad, but it's part of the game too, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, the other one that I mentioned, Queen's Ransom, who was another one we purchased off the track. He was a five-year-old, so a little bit older. And I guess maybe when we bought him, I had a little bit more of an idea of what I might have been looking for. I knew he had a lovely big trot. He was a big rangy, sort of scopey-looking horse and just the most exceptional temperament. Oh, good. So in terms of trainability, that horse was just amazing. Probably nowhere near as much talent as the Black Horse had, but trainability got him a very long way because I think if you looked at his natural talent, again, you probably would never have thought he'd be a four-star horse. (laughs) That's good, isn't it? He was fantastic. He taught me a lot about training. And incidentally, too, both these horses did compete up to a fairly high-level dressage. So the Black Horse he had a few advanced starts mm-hmm. and Queen's Ransom, the chestnut horse, I had a couple of Prince of George starts on him later in his career. So again, the ability to be able to train something that could go around four star, but also do a decent enough dressage test was pretty good fun. I'm just going back to what you said is, you know, you're only as good as a horse you're sitting on. It makes it all so special though if you've made the horses, you know, they're not just horses Absolutely. that you've gone and bought, that you've, you've made them, Yeah. Absolutely. And I think my history suggests that I'm better at doing that than getting on something that's already been going. More recently, like in the last 10 years, Mm. I've bought a couple of horses that have been maybe slight problems, but have been going at a level. And I don't like undoing other people's problems. Yeah. Yeah. I'd much prefer, you know, yes, okay, again, you might create your own issues and we've all got our little stock standard things that carry through with every single horse we sit on, I think. But, yeah, my history suggests that I much prefer and am better at starting them from scratch and working through with them. And, again, it's my preference well and truly to do that. What's been your proudest moment? Oh, I think there's quite a few, but probably any of those moments with either of those two horses. I think at my first Adelaide, as I said, in 2001, I won the um, trophy for the closest to optimum time. I finished on the optimum time or one second under or something along those lines, and I won this amazing trophy that had names of Andrew Hoy on it and that sort of thing. So that was pretty cool. As a 21-year-old, yeah, finishing their first four-star, I thought that was pretty awesome. That's one, probably. Even... Silly little things. When I was 16, the National Dressage Championships were held in Tasmania. Yes. And I rode the same black horse, Queen's Consort, in the Novice and Elementary and actually won the Young Rider Trophy at that. So, again, that was, I guess, quite a proud achievement, I suppose, that I was like, right, well, the Nationals are going to be here. (laughs) I'm on this horse. He probably was only just starting his elementary career, but he managed to go out and pull it off. One of the occasions where he actually um, kept his hair on, he was known for blowing up in the dressage occasionally. Yeah, so that was probably another one. And again, I think winning Adelaide two-star and Melbourne one-star on the chestnut horse, Queen's Ransom, 
He was a very consistent performer, but once he hit three-star, four-star level, he was known to have some show jump rails. Okay. So one-star, two-star level, he was very competitive and at some three-star one-day events as well. But again, take him to a three-day and he was such a laid-back character. He would get into the show jumping and just, you know, can around and just <laughs> knock a few out of the way. All right. I want you to put your coach's cap on and tell me about a common problem. Let's have a jumping problem that you see, but I want you to tell me how to fix it as well, you know, just for the listeners. Okay. I think probably one of the massive, massive things I see is a bit of a rider problem, which is riders that go looking for a distance. So they're educated enough that all they want to do is look for the perfect distance. So they'll start coming around the corner and either see this distance that they have to flap and kick and chase and flatten the horse, or they see this distance where they start hauling on its head and making the counter really short and completely killing all the impulsion and getting to the fence with nothing. And I think it's something I come across all the time as a coach. And again, back to the old training scale, rhythm. Yes. If you don't have a rhythm, it's impossible to jump. So I spend ages cantering over poles with riders, just making them canter poles in rhythm and just being able to stay in that rhythm everywhere they go. And again, it's really easy sometimes on sand because you can actually hear it. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> you know, for the riders that may not be able to feel it so well, they can hear it. So I think, you know, it's something I try to teach riders to do I suppose and again it, that also you know comes down to horses that rush or horses that stall out of a turn or whatever you know it's the same basic principle canter in a rhythm mm. if you can't canter in a rhythm it's really really difficult so I'm inclined to set up poles on a distance I'm inclined to set up pole jump pole on a distance in a straight line and just get people to canter down there in a rhythm, not change it. Start with all pole on the ground, build the middle one up to a fence yep. and just go on right at the same. Don't change your rhythm, just keep cantering. And then once they master that, then you can start worrying about changes of tempo. Yes. Okay. But you've got to be able to go in a rhythm before you can worry about changes of tempo. Yep, yep. That's probably one that I see a lot and that I spend my life teaching and correcting. Okay, it's one that people can go out at different levels too, you know, even if they're riding on the flat, something to focus on, even that, you know, stalling out of a corner. It's, it's something that if they're not going forward and riding the rhythm through the corner in the test, in the dressage test. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. again, how many times do you see people come into a dressage arena, turn onto the circle and the trot changes by half? Yes, yes. Yep. yep. <laughs> Yep. Just because they've turned on a circle. So, yeah, it's exactly the same. Yep. Exactly the same. Oh, hang on a sec. Let me interrupt to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at onlinehorsecollege.com. If you have a look at the flexible options, there's online theory and the practical components can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website, again, is onlinehorsecollege.com. Okay, thanks. 
All right. Now, how many horses have you got in work? How many have you got on the property? Because you're in the process of setting up your property now. Yes, yep. correct. Yep. So at the moment, I've only got two here. Okay. Mum and dad have been babysitting the other two, which happens to be just one retiree <laughs> and another bay horse. So basically, of the three out of the four that are rideable, they're all homebred base. They're the tail end of mostly mums, but a bit a combination of my breeding program. Yep. So I've got a six-year-old mare by Graffenstoll, which is our first frozen semen foal. So she did the Young Horse Chance, Dressage and Jumping with the Stars, as a four-year-old and won combined award for Dressage and Jumping Mare. She, in the last 18 months, has injured me twice on the ground. So we've both had quite a bit of time off. So virtually in her career, eventing career, she has had four event starts, three intros and one prelim, and she's been very competitive, finishing the top two at every event. Oh, that's good. But her career in terms of her age is very limited. But then the next one down is the one that's missed out even more. He's five. He still has never done a competition, and he's virtually not been ridden off the property. <laughs> <laughs> is so that injury related those, or what's what's the reason but for that's, that? That's, again, purely because he was always the second priority because yep. at the time I was doing her early stuff, I was finishing my teaching degree mm-hmm. and then last year I was in my first year of teaching so I was sort of focusing, I guess, a little bit on my career as well mm-hmm. and then an injury last year and then an injury this year. So, yeah, the five-year-old has done very little, but he is currently in work. He decided to pull the old, I've whacked my fetlock the day before the first outing I had planned for him. (laughs) So that resulted in three weeks off and he is now back in work. And then the next one down again is a just four-year-old. And again, he's very green. He's been broken in and he's done a little bit of work, but he really needs to start to learn about life. But Again, at the moment, while I'm trying to set up the property and whatever else, and that's why I've only got the two here, we're still finishing fencing, the arena's still under construction. So, yes, it's all very much a work in progress. Yeah, yep. All right. Can you recommend a book then for our listeners? This sounds really silly, but I've been reading it a lot lately. The FEI Dressage book, which talks you through all the movements and all the marks. I think if more writers read that, they could have a lot more insight into why they get certain marks in their dressage test, but also why or what they should be aiming towards to get the best marks they can in their test. Mm. So I've been looking at it a lot lately because I'm currently undertaking my judging qualification. So, yeah, it's been a nice little bit of light reading for me. It's, (laughs) you know, yeah, yeah, because while um, the judges... You know, it's essential reading as a judge, but certainly as a rider and as a coach too because as a coach, Absolutely. if you're more aware of what the rules are and what gets marked high, what's not, you know, what's acceptable, what's yes. not acceptable, um, it exactly. makes it you can then pass it on to your students who can go out and compete. Absolutely. And, and I think that's the thing. While I've been embarking on this judging qualification, it has made me look sometimes a little differently at combinations when I'm coaching. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, it's an interesting balance between (laughs) the coach hat and the judge hat. 
Okay. All right. Now, thinking of what you're looking forward to, you've already said that you're looking forward to your judging qualification. You've got your four horses. Um, you've yes. Got students coming along. What are you looking forward to? A combination of all of that. I'd like to have the property up and running because I think that's going to allow me to get cracking into these horses a little bit more seriously. Again, at the moment, I saddle up, tied up to the horse float. My tack box in the horse float is my tack room for the everyday stuff. I've got a very nice neighbour who lets me use her arena. So I ride down the road to her arena. It's been good education for the young horses to have to do that. So, yeah, when I can actually just saddle up in my stables and go and ride on my arena, that will be amazing and save a lot of time. And yeah, I think definitely just getting these young horses going, I think, you know, they're all nice young horses and they need to actually learn about the world so they can get out and actually show us what they're made of. Okay. And yeah, I guess to the other side of my life at the moment is my career as a teacher. So I think, I guess there's been quite a bit of focus on that over the last few years while I've been studying. And then last year I was working in a school, this year I'm working at a TAFE teaching horse-related subjects. Mm. So yeah, there's definitely a little bit of a focus there as well. And I think I'm looking forward to seeing where that side of my career takes me as well. There's lots of different careers in the horse industry, isn't there? You know, it's not just... One is a professional rider. There's so many. It's so diverse. And you can. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then using your. I never thought I. Yeah. Sorry, I was going to say using your coaching qualifications combined with your teaching qualifications. um, Yeah. Yes. And that is an ultimate dream of mine Mm. to be teaching in a school where I could be definitely, you know, teaching some science and agriculture, but maybe you know, a school that has some sort of horse facility yes. or focus on horses that I could also combine my coaching Good. in there as well. I mean, that's what led me to a teaching degree was my love of coaching and helping riders and whatever else that I went, okay, maybe I need to follow this through a little further. And that's yeah, why I ended up doing a teaching degree. Yeah, yeah. Look, I did the same thing, you know, and I think it was the teaching that I'd done I, um, you know, was coaching and then I was actually teaching as a workplace trainer and then did that because I was already, I think I wanted the job, applied as a teacher, was doing that part-time while I was working in a, similar to a TAFE college. Yeah. 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 It's good, you know, the teaching, the coaching, it all just winds its way around and you can get lots of experience and do lots of things within the industry. Yeah. Absolutely, well and truly. Catherine, can you sum up your philosophy into a lesson today, please, for our listeners? My philosophy of a lesson? Mm. Yeah, just into a lesson. Like I'm thinking of, you know, saying if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always had or you always got. Yeah. Okay. Always got, yeah. Yep. Yep. So so something like that, just for people to take away. So they've got it uh, as a memory, you know, they can say, oh, right, well, in today's yep. podcast, this is what I learned. Yep. Yeah. Again, I think from a training perspective, like I was talking about earlier, about sort of having that goal and sort of what you're aiming for so that any given day when you get on and sort of assess where you and your horse are at, that's... You can go, okay, well, today I'm going to work on X and that you make that your focus. Like there might be, you know, some other little things that you sort of do within that, but your main focus is going to be 
working on the rhythm in the trot or working on the straightness in all paces or whatever. And, you know, you think about the exercises that you're going to do to achieve that or, again, it's just having that, that plan, I suppose, and that you go, okay, well, if that's not working, what can I do instead of that? But, you know, you've still got that plan in the back of your head that that's what I was setting out to achieve today. And I think, you know, what's important too is what I said at the start is that you assess where you and your horse are at for that day. Because I can tell you there's many days when I get home from work and I go, I am so tired. There is no way I'm going to school my horse today. I'm going for a hack in the back paddock. (laughs) So I think that's also an important one is, you know, your mindset and the horse's mindset that you judge that on any given day. My mare, who's really tricky, I judge her mood when I'm saddling her up. And again, I go, yeah, no, today's not an arena day. Yep, yep. (laughs) And that's where I talk about being able to modify your plan and your goals that I can't tell you when I saddle up that today I'm going to work on rhythm in the trot because if I judge today as a day that I'm not in the headspace or the horse is not in the headspace to go on the arena and work on rhythm in the trot, then I'm better off to go in the back paddock. And sure, in a way, I can work on rhythm in the trot in the back Mm. paddock, but it's not going to be the same way I would do it if I was doing it on the arena. But yeah, again, that's not really a philosophy, I suppose, but... As I said, more just talking about training goals, I suppose. I think that gives people something to take away anyway. Hopefully. All right. Catherine, how can people contact you? So email is a good way. So will you publicise the details? It's probably easier to have it written down rather than me trying to spell it out loud. Email, phone. I've got a Facebook page. I don't have a website any longer. When I moved properties and sort of embarked a bit more on the teaching side of things, I'm not obviously commercial in my business anymore. So, yes, I'm still coaching and I still coach a bit at adult riding clubs and whatever, but my preference is to teach riders one-on-one. Yes, so email and phone are the best ways to get in touch with me. Okay, and those details will be on Horse Chat, so it'll be horsechats.com slash Catherine Davies. Excellent. All right, thanks very much, Catherine, to talk to you today. It's been wonderful, and hopefully we'll um, talk again soon. Thank you. Awesome. Thank Thank you, Glenna. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate, and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 